Another episode of Sorry No Podcast today, where unfortunately we do not have a podcast because we are making jokes about people who run certain bowl games in the offseason for seniors. Um, I'm back. We're all back. And I guess it's time to talk uh, talk some ball. There is no big games. You know, there's no big games this weekend. Nothing really happening. We might talk a little bit about the NCAA game. You know, we're excited for that to come out. You can eat a Pop-Tart, maybe, maybe not in that game. But, uh, Alex, what are you most excited for with the newest NCAA game? Uh, the Pop-Tart mostly. But uh, if they don't have the Pop-Tart, then I think the most uh, exciting thing about the game will be uh, doing NIL recruiting, which I'm sure will definitely not be transa- uh, microtransactions based on the way that EA Sports operates their business. If I have to spend VC to unlock NIL money, I'm never going to play that game again. Well, how else, <laughs> how else are you going to raise money for your NIL collective than spending real money? <laughs> like straight up, if I have to pay like NBA 2K to pay for VC to improve my player, I just will not play. Like it's it's over for that game. I'll just create a player. I believe game. I believe they said that microtransactions like it's not going to be a very microtransaction heavy game. I don't believe them. Let's be clear. I don't believe them, but that's what they've said like multiple times. I just don't believe them. Well, Kevin, what are you most excited about with the new NCAA game? I hope they let me be a booster, but then like just commit the most shady deals behind the scenes. I want to go to like the middle of nowhere. John Ruiz. (laughs) I want to go to Canada and like go find the like the big Eskimo like offensive tackle and just like give him a Dodge Charger. I just want to give him a Dodge Charger. Kevin, you can't say Eskimo. Are you, are you recruiting him for the military or for Miami? Like you, <laughs> you recruit him for the Marines. The my my my, my UMass franchise will run a very tight ship, uh, or something. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, Kevin said, "I'm sure I can put together our finest troops." And take out one of the best college football teams in America. We will take down New Mexico State under any circumstance. Uh, sorry, Jerry Carroll already did that. Can we can we clip that, Kevin saying that? We, we will take down New Mexico State under any circumstance. Tyler, what are you most excited about with the new NCAA game? I want to be the dirtiest head coach of all time, and and the the dirtier I get. And the better I am at it, then I don't get caught. I want to give recruits money in a McDonald's bag. I want to be able to to call escort services for my recruits when they're on a visit. I want to do all that dirty shit. I want the ability to do it and then get away with it. This is deeply Tyler Harbaugh. (laughs) He's he's out here recruiting Connor Stallions to come coach with him. AJ, who are you? What who or what are you most most excited for with this new NCAA game? I think I think the transfer portal is probably the most like exciting entry, just because it's it's new 
and I think there's a lot of intrigue on how they're going to handle it. But me personally, like if I if I can't get in trouble for buying a recruit a hamburger, like I I don't know if I want to play the game. You know, like if I if I don't get an NCAA level one infraction for buying a recruit a hamburger or eating too much pasta, I don't know if I want it. So I think the thing that I'm the most excited for is with Road to Glory and my player is going to enter the transfer portal. We're going to spend like a year wherever we're at. Like say say we like end up at like freaking Texas State or something as a freshman. Go ball out of Texas State and then immediately leave. Let's see what the NIL valuation is going to be. And then I'm going to I'm going to use all that and be like, "Oh, None of these are good. I'm just going to hop back out the portal and hop in next year and then come back. My my question is, will they allow multi-year transfers? Because there's currently the whole like court case going on about like how they're allowed to go back and transfer, which is why like Caden Salter's in the transfer portal. Will NCAA 25 reflect that? And will I be able to transfer every year for four years just because I get bored very easily at Alabama for a year? <laughs> Will he wants to play Cam Ward Simulator. Will we get the super seniors? Will we get the sixth and seventh year guys? No, I want to know if we're going to get the eighth or ninth year guys. Cam McCormick Simulator is going to get so Cam McCormick Simulator. The coach going to get tired of me. Just show him back. Go get a job simulator. (laughs) LinkedIn Simulator. Like AJ Dillon. You load in the road to glory practice and it turns into like European truck simulator. I want to know how many how many schools that you can get from a true freshman. Can you get them to six or seven you're different like, universities with the portal? You're like you're 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 like six years in, and the game just goes. You Look have to go to COVID Madden. year. You don't have a choice. <laughs> I also would like to create my own playbook. I want to steal from yeah. everybody. I want. Yeah, to I, I I think that's that. It, I Madden should have added that years ago. Well, well you don't have do. to like base it on a playbook. You okay. can just. So when the game comes out and you eventually do um, dynasty mode and you're an offensive coordinator or a head coach, whose playbook are you using for the offense? I'll start with AJ. That's a great question. I think I would go Sean Lewis. Mm, That's a good one. That's a good one. I I think, granted, there's probably a little too many RPOs, but I think that'd be fun as heck. Katzen? Air Force baby, always. That's right. That's blessed right there. Tyler, which one are you using? GJ Kenny. Air it out deep and a bunch of counter. Let's go. Coward. Kevin? Uh, I'm thinking Coastal Carolina triple option, so I guess that'd have to be Liberty? Or where is... God, Kevin picking the Liberty playbook is just perfect. Well, sorry... I would I would love to choose Coastal Carolina, but they don't run that stuff anymore. Have you seen their offense recently? That's kind of it's kind of bad. I'm actually shocked that they beat San Jose State. Yeah, honest. we all are. We all are for being honest. Um I don't watch I, movie, to be honest. I'm choosing Kansas. I'm choosing Ooh. Kansas offense. No, and no, you, you you have to choose Penn State if you want uh the motion and the collective. Yeah, if you want that all playbook, you have to choose Penn State. He's fine. Kind of I'll choose. I'll choose Penn State. Uh, I'll include some of the Liberty pistol triple. I might. I'm choosing Miami because the air raid is a is not the mentality. The air raid is a god forsaken <laughs> offense. Brandon Marion's 
Brennan Marion's go-go would be fun in that game. I was going to say, I think UNLV's would probably have been my second choice. But I don't know how they're going to do that because that's like a very unique offense that is... I'm not going to lie. I would also choose Utah because I want to play with a bunch of tight ends on the field. Yes. And we're going to run the piss out of the football. Just run run 13 personnel and no one's going to stop me. Yeah, Um, I mean, we're just going to hit you harder. The other one I'm interested to see how they implement, and I'm never going to use it because it's terrorist ball. Uh, Wake Forest's uh, slow mesh RPO. Like, how I are they gonna? They put that in. I hope how are they, they gonna put that, that in the game? Never ever put that in the game. Like, if if their entire thing is like trying to accurately pro- portray like playbooks, how do you do that when no one has any clue how to run it except it would just, for it would one just person? be the the animation. Like that would be imagine it. like if they do like online play like they have Madden, but you're playing some dude who runs the Wake Forest <laughs> offense. And I would lags. throw the controller at the TV. Uh, other idea, especially especially if it lags, like that slow handoff when it lags, that'd be awful. It would be nightmare uh, inducing. The the other thing I'm excited to do is the Marcus Freeman ten guys on the field, nine guys on the field in a critical situation against a top fifteen opponent. Well, you know they had a great time, Jesus. he was the he was the 11th man but i guess we do have football to talk about the national championship is on monday um we're going to talk a little bit about the uh the semifinal games we're going to start with our favorite washington huskies taking down the texas longhorns in what turned out to be a really 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 good game at first i thought it was going to be kind of a blowout because washington was just dialed in but Texas actually made some really big plays, really nice improvements in the second half. But in the end, too much Husky, too much UW. Katzen, the ISO is yours. Go ahead. This is the best game I've ever seen Michael Penix play in his whole life. And it was so sick. Uh, I was watching it with my friends uh, that all went to UW with me. We were uh, having a terrible time. I was doing the dad thing where I was standing behind the couch. I didn't sit down the whole game. Um, it, it was awesome, dude. It was sick. Um, Roma Dunze is incredible. Michael Penix is incredible. Uh, Dylan Johnson seems like he's going to be fine to play in the national championship, which is huge. Uh, Jabbar Muhammad, incredible. Just, just a wonderful, wonderful, uh, showing of football all around. Um, you know, we've talked about it on the show before. I've talked about it on Twitter before, um, mostly during the whole Oregon saga, but like, one of the things that just gets ignored every time that the media writ large talks about this Washington team is that uh, Kalen DeBoer just doesn't lose games. That's just not really a thing that he does. And, you know, like a lot of that is kind of like vibes based analysis to a certain point. Um, but like you can tell if you actually watch this Washington team, which it seems like most people uh, have not this season. Um and I think that that was pretty apparent in the way that, um, you know, people were surprised about the way that this game went. Um, but if you've watched the UW team play this year, you can tell that there's a pretty marked difference when they're in a big game like this and they're, you know, under bright lights and they're playing for like something that matters and when they're not. Um, and it's, kind of similar to like the way that the big 10 teams kind of slow rolled during like that October part of their, their conference schedule where like Michigan is playing Maryland and Ohio state is messing around with Rutgers in like 30 degree wins or whatever. 
Um, it's kind of similar to that, but it's also like the step up that Washington has taken this season in big moments is so much bigger than like what those teams normally do. Like it, it is legitimately like an entire team boost every single time. And you can tell that the energy is just different every single time. And, uh, you know, they did that against Texas, uh, in what was basically an away game because of how, you know, because of the location of it in new Orleans. Um, and they did, they did the thing, man, they, they did the damn thing and they're going to play for a national championship for the first time since 1991. Uh, and it's sick as hell. And we should all be very excited because, uh, it's sick. It's sick. So the thing that really stood out to me when watching this game and going back and rewatching, there was a stat that came out after the game. And the reason I said that Washington was going to beat Texas is because they have an NFL quarterback throwing to three NFL receivers. It's very hard to defend that when you have a bunch of 18 year olds out there. So when Michael Penix was targeting Roma Dunze, Jalen Polk and Jalen McMillan in the sugar bowl, he was 19 of 20. 353 yards and two touchdowns. And that includes Jeremy Bernard. It's really hard to defend that. It is really hard to defend someone where you'd see all those 50-50 passes. They're not really 50-50. They're more like 90-10 in Washington's favor. They just have so many different ways to beat you. I I don't think Washington got a lot of credit for how physical they are up front and how much of a problem they can cause opposing offenses. Because Braylon Trice had like a absurd game, just an insane game production wise. He kind of anchored that pass rush. They did a lot of stuff to make Quinn Ewers flustered. But I think this was a it's odd to say it because it's happening in a semifinal. But this was a statement game for Washington. They thought a lot of people thought Texas was going to kind of big boy them and kind of because they had the big they had the bigger dudes up front. But it's just really, really hard to defend all of the guys that they have at the same time. Kevin? Yeah, the, the final two plays of the game. Uh, Alex, quick question. Who is calling the plays on defense for Washington? Because I know they have co-coordinators on defense. That because... is a good question. Um, I believe it's – I think it's Morrell. If Morrell or whoever is calling those plays, those last two drives, like they tried to play the prevent defense for most of that last drive, and Texas had the counters to it. I love that on those final two plays, Washington was like, you know what, we're just going to send pressure and we're going to force you where to try and make a play. And the ball in the last play was awful, right? The ball in that last play to AD Mitchell was a terrible ball by Quinn Ewers, but like, it was a terrible ball because he got flustered out the pocket. He had to try and throw flat-footed, and he couldn't get the same zip or the same power or the same accuracy that he normal normally could get on the throw like that. And like when they figured out ways to get pressure on Quinn Ewers, the Texas offense had no answer, and that is probably a flaw of like what Quinn Ewers is at this point because Quinn Ewers at this point is a limited quarterback who hasn't developed into the five-star that people expected him to be. But like when they sent pressure and got pressure, and this was Braylon Trice going demon mode in the final half of this game, he was the best player on the field. 
uh, when they found ways to get pressure, it was over for Texas and they had no chance of, of answering. And if they can do that against Michigan, I would be feeling really good about their chances of winning that game because similarly, I don't really trust JJ McCarthy when you get two, three guys in his face for the entire game. AJ, I kind of want to ask what the perspective is for Texas at this point, because it's kind of like, oh, it was a good fight. Texas is back at this point. But you got to kind of be thinking like, dang, like it, it was right there. If Ewers throws that pass in the area code of A.D. Mitchell, who had a monster second half, like just completely took over the game. The over-the-shoulder catch he had from the one Ewers deep ball that, he, that uh, was actually in the area code. The Whittington one was just an amazing catch. But that over-the-shoulder catch was absurd. What is the perspective from Texas's side now that it's like now that the dust has settled a little bit? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of disappointment. Obviously, there would be in this, but Texas has a lot of guys who are now going off to the NFL. A ton of production is leaving, right? You have uh Christian Jones, the right tackle is gone. Worthy, Whittington, Mitchell, all probably gone. We'll see what Quinn Ewers decides to do if he kind of gets like big man on campus by Arch Manning. Um, John Brooks could still declare, even though he was hurt, his tape was still excellent. And defensively, they have a, a ton of guys, right? Those two defensive tackles are gone. Like this was the year for Texas to make it. This was the year because they had so much talent and they're all gone. So now you have to hit the portal hard to try and replace that talent. Oh, granted, Texas has done a really good job of recruiting, right? Especially this cycle. They flipped a lot of guys late. Uh, they've been very good. I think, I think Sark has done a good job of rebuilding, but when you have that much talent leaving, now you're heading into the sec with that. I really, I think there's a lot of, of disappointment of, this was the year to do it because we were in the big 12. We won the big 12 and now we have to go into the sec gauntlet and who's the next guy. Right? like, what does this team look like next year? Because they probably won't make it back next year. They I mean, granted they could if college football is unpredictable, but I, I feel, I just feel like there was so much resentment towards like how Sark kind of managed that game a little bit. Um, I think he got, too cute i think he overthought a lot of things um because this was the squad this was this was the year for texas to at least make the national championship game like even even if they didn't win the national championship i think texas just being in it for the first time it would be incredible i think that would have done a, a lot of morale but then you lose on the last play of the game and i i think that has i think that leaves such a bitter taste in so many people's mouths See, I don't know, and I guess it's because I didn't watch the rest of the game in real time, but I don't think Sark's play calling was that bad. Like going back and re-watching, not even like the situation. It was, was, it was the it was it's the pass run splits, especially kind of like early. Like Texas should not have ever stopped running the ball. And they oh, kept yeah, yeah, trying yeah. they kept trying to pass early and Braylon Trice would just whoop up on Christian Jones. Yeah, and, but like, 
like I, I get you kind of you want to avoid Quinn Ewers being in those passing down situations just because like like Kevin was saying he's a he's a limited quarterback. Um what's if Sark can can get a real quarterback, I really, really am interested to see what that offense can evolve into. Uh but it was it was really like a lot of they were they were they could have run for 250 yards on Washington if they just gave a concentrated effort to it. And I think that ha- I think that's probably a lot of disappointment right now is I think Sark kind of overthought it a little too much. So Tyler, I want to ask you about Ewers specifically because I feel like this was a very typical Quinn Ewers game where he shows you like, oh, this guy can be really good. This guy can win you a lot of games. But at the end of the day, he missed on a lot of big, crucial throws. And there were just a lot of marginal mistakes by a Texas team who kind of showed like, yeah, you're good, but Washington is battle tested. They they made the plays that Texas did it. And it's it kind of gets over it's kind of oversimplifying it, but it makes so much sense when going back and watching that game. Washington has the battle tested dudes who have been in that fire before, and Texas just didn't. Listen, I want to start with this, and I've been saying it for over a month. Washington is the best team in the country, and it's about time that people really start realizing. And I think this performance, look, the game shouldn't have been this close for multiple reasons, and we know why, but it also shouldn't have even gone down to the wire because that Dylan Johnson injury stopped the clock 50 seconds left. Should have been like 13. Um, but the Ewers thing, it's it's wild to watch him because you get the sense that he knows exactly what he needs to do, and then his arm just can't cash the checks his brain wants him to. It's there's just some kind of disconnect within him because you get you get these short spurts where he just looks like a great quarterback, and then the rest of the time, like and I I, I really point to the game against Rice where he just he sucked. And it's just like, what are we doing? You have all this ability and you have the intelligence to play the position and you're just not using any of it. And I I think he really let the pressure get to him a little bit against Washington and just rush throws and wasn't really take just playing within himself because like Quinn Ewers is like one of six or seven players ever to have a perfect 1.0 score on the 24-7 sports composite. Like there's a lot of ability with him. He's just not putting it together. And unless he's ever able to put it together consistently, you're going to continue to see these performances where he's got it. He knows what he's able to do. He knows how to do it. He just doesn't. And it's very frustrating to watch because it just feels like he's being wasted and it's his fault. Nobody else's that that's got, those are the vibes I got in this game. And, like some of those plays you mentioned earlier with Adonai Mitchell, the Jordan Whittington catch where Whittington just used insane body control to go up and get it. Like he's not exactly making their lives easy. Uh, those, I, I understand that last play of the game, you are, you're throwing that fade route. That's a weird one because that's not a depth that you throw a fade route. So you're trying to almost figure out how to coordinate it. How far is my drop supposed to be? Where am I putting the football? Oh. Am I going to, am I going to hitch before I actually make the throw? Like, but the guy, people who are the guy do that. Michael Penix is going to make that throw and yours didn't. And to me, that was the biggest difference in the game. So where does Texas go from here with the, 
the whole quarterback thing because, of course, Ewers is talented, but I feel like people are going to want to see Arch at some point. Is this another year of Arch? Because I think he said, like, yeah, I'm cool with sitting and waiting. So is this another year of Ewers in the SEC with more with more t- uh, tape and film on him? Kevin, what what does Texas do from here? It's interesting, right? Because like we haven't seen Arch play yet because Malik Murphy was the backup quarterback and there were rumors. Uh, I know they had mentioned it on the broadcast that supposedly Arch was uh, pushing him for that spot, uh, for the backup spot. And so like there was a, a thought process that he would have been the backup regardless for this game. Uh, I think Arch is like a really good fit in Sarkeesian system. He is, you know, he's incredibly good at processing the field. And like, I get it. It's like the really, the manning kind of trait of like being able to process the field quickly. Uh, there is a lot of stuff about, I get it. Like the high school competition he played was incredibly weak. He played in a really low or a really weak classification in Louisiana. But like, I think he fits this offense. My problem is that like, if the idea is we want to compete next year, right? Like we still have a window to compete and they have hit the transfer portal. Well, they so far, uh, they have recruited incredibly well. They have the third best class according to 24 seven. If that's the, if that's the thing, I don't know if I want to be giving the keys to a, redshirt freshman who will be playing his first extended action in the sec because that's where my concern sort of hits of like he could be really good right and like we think he could be really good and i think he is a very talented quarterback but i don't know if i want to be throwing him against michigan because they play michigan next year georgia because they play georgia next year in athens i believe uh correct me if i'm wrong there but like if if I'm playing, uh, they they play Red River. Like if if I'm trying to make sure a quarterback has it for the rest of his career, I don't know if I want it against the SEC with the way the SEC is looking. All things considered, like right now, probably not the best idea to throw him out there. I, where I think this is is struggling for me is is from the Quinn Ewers perspective. Because we all saw the vi- the pictures of him at the media day where all of the attention was that on Arch was... Manning. Okay, so that was a little different. Shut up, Kevin. I don't care. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, wow. <laughs> there it is. First one in. We got we got one. Start first the counter. Year. <laughs> I, had, I had to do it. No, go ahead, Kevin. I was just uh, kidding. So just real quick, like that isn't... I, the picture's funny. Like, don't get me wrong. The picture's incredibly funny. And Quinn Ewers looks incredibly, like... I don't know if it's, like, disheveled or, like, I don't know what the reaction is. But, like, they've spoken to Quinn Ewers all year. And Quinn Ewers had plenty of media opportunities during the playoffs. Like, it is a funny photo. It is not indicative of, like, the fact that everyone cares about Arch Banning more. This was the first time anyone got to talk to Arch Banning during well, an interview. Yeah, I'm not... Like, that was just, like, an example of, like, highlighting the okay. bigger point. Is that, like, Arch is almost kind of like the big men on campus here in Austin. It's like arch this arch that like, like all of these decisions, like how does Sark manage arch Manning? And it's never, how does Sark manage Quinn Ewers? It's never like it. That's where I kind of wonder from a Quinn Ewers perspective of like, how do you handle, I mean, Quinn Ewers was 
like Tyler said, one of the most had the perfect rating coming out of high school. Like he was the dude and he came to Texas. They called him mullet Mahomes. And yeah, like he had all of this and then he's now not that right. Like all of that is taken away because of this next guy and all of the boosters who paid all that money for Arch Manning's visits and all that. Eventually they're going to want to see a return on investment, which means Arch Manning has to play. And if Quinn Ewers is not delivering or it's just kind of the same that he was these last two years and that pressure is there, like Arch is, Arch is going to just like the noise is going to get unbearable at that point. And so if you're Quinn Ewers, I almost feel like you you have to declare because of everything else going on. Now you don't know. I'm not necessarily saying that's the best decision for him, but I mean, he could, he could feasibly transfer as a multi-time transfer but i just i really wonder psychologically like to have all of that taken from you and now with all of the things that texas loses especially in that first year in the sec like that's tough and you're you're basically just taking the bullet for another guy i have a really funny scenario that i'd like to pose given that yours is eligible to transfer as a multi-time transfer because of the new waiver are you going to go where I think you're going with this? Ohio State hasn't picked up a portal quarterback That's yet. Right. <laughs> yes, sir. What if, what if he goes? Welcome back, baby. <laughs> what if he goes back? Because, listen, like, I think that, like, apart from it being very funny, because it would be very funny if he went back to Ohio State, I think that it kind of perfectly fixes both people's problems. Ohio State needs a quarterback to play next season because Kyle McCord's at Syracuse and uh, Devin Brown and Lincoln Keenholds don't look like they're going to be the answer that Ohio State is looking for. Um, there's been rumors about Will Howard going to Ohio State, but like if your options are Will Howard or Quinn Ewers, just from like a you're Ohio State and you're trying to make a splash perspective, not talking, not even talking about like who's the better player on the field. Um, but just like from a, you're a power program, you want to make a splash sign a big name perspective. You probably go with yours every time in that situation. Um, and for yours, it gives him a chance to still play for a power program, still, you know, compete for a championship, raise his, his, uh, his draft profile. Uh, you know, if he doesn't get good feedback from the committee this year, which is a dicey proposition, I think. Um, and, you know, gives him an opportunity to go somewhere where he'll have NFL talent around him and he can kind of like uh, not necessarily like take a step down, but, you know, kind of take a step laterally and go do something else and, you know, have not have someone that's like lurking over his shoulder like Arch will be all of next year if he comes back to Texas. Um, so I think that like, there's a lot of reasons why it does make sense. I don't think it'll happen, but again, it would be very, very funny. And for that reason, I would like for it to happen. I would even push back. Like, I so first of all, I don't think you should declare at all. He's just not pro ready. There is little value in declaring right now. Uh, I would say. I don't even think he needs to go. I don't think he needs to be at a big school, right? Like we have seen him sort of, I don't know if it's struggling to handle the pressure, but we've seen a lot of inconsistency from him 
at a power five program, right? And when you're at a big time power five program like Texas, like Ohio State, those mistakes are amplified. Uh, those mistakes are larger than they are if you're at a smaller school. And I'm not going to sit here and be like, Quinn Ewers needs to go transfer to Sam Houston or Quinn Ewers needs to go to Stephen F. Austin. Uh, but there is, I think, a discussion to be had of, is it beneficial for Quinn Ewers to leave the spotlight per se and not be at a blue blood program mm-hmm. like Texas and go be at, uh, I, I know they don't really need a quarterback, like, but like Texas Tech or go play at TCU or go play at a smaller school where he's able to develop, he's able to remain out of the spotlight as much as he is probably right now at Texas where he is the starting quarterback. Um, feel like there might be benefit in going to a smaller market and being able to develop the things that you need to develop on heading into the next year, which can be seen as the, like, I am going to declare after next year, right? Like I'm going to declare for the 2025 uh, NFL draft. And so like, if that's the idea, there may be value in leaving the spotlight going to just focus on the things that you need to focus on to make sure that you can figure out a little bit more consistency. You can make sure those high moments are high moments consistently and try and build that stock into becoming a better player. I get what you're saying, Kevin. I think that the, the thing that I would kind of push back on a little bit is that like, I think that no matter where Quinn Ewers goes, there's going to be a spotlight on him. Um, It may not be as big as the one that he's in at Texas, but like there's, there's there's going to be a spotlight. Don't get me wrong, but would the would you rather have the spotlight be at TCU, for example, or be have the spotlight at Texas, where if you struggle at Texas, you are the villain, right? If you struggle at Texas, you are villain number one. You are the guy to blame for every single loss because you're the starting quarterback. Sure, that think, feels awful for confidence. Yeah, sure. I, I get that point for sure. I think also, like, in terms of declaring, I think that the argument for him doing that, whether he's pro-ready or not, based on his body of work this season and, you know, as in his two and a half years as the starter, uh, or two years as the starter, is that uh, the middle of the quarterback class is empty. There's not a lot happening in there (laughs) like we were having this discussion in our group chat earlier today but like there are four five six teams that could be in the market for a day two quarterback and there are three maybe that have a day two grade and so i think if you're viewers even if you get the feedback of like hey man you're not going to be a first round pick you're going to be second third even like a fringe like fourth round guy you probably consider it because someone like, especially as a five-star perfect recruit and everything, the NFL loves to take chances on those guys, loves to overdraft those guys, loves to say like, well, it's the college coaching that, that messed him up. We'll be able to restore him back to, you know, this glorious high school player that he was. And so you're probably looking at a situation where you get overdrafted, not only because the quarter, the middle of the quarterback class is weak, but also because you're a five-star recruit and you have the name value. And so you're looking at going, you know, even if you are graded out as a fourth round prospect, you're looking at going in like the second or third round because you're Quinn Ewers. And so I think that's the argument for doing it. 
um, in a vacuum, just like based on his play on the field. No, I don't think he should declare. Um, but with the context and with like everything that he is and, and like everything around the situation, like, I, I think that there is a argument to be made that it would be not a terrible idea for him. I, I also think with this whole context of talking about Quinn Ewers needing to go somewhere where there's not a lot of pressure. I think it. we need to reframe the conversation. I think he needs to go somewhere where he, there isn't this legend in waiting behind him that the entire fan base wants to see more than him because I think that is worse than just the general pressure of having to win at Texas because you know what? He still won at Texas. And in Texas's three biggest games, he's 2-1. and one. And I, I'm not counting Red River. Red River is just such a weird fucking football game. But in those two games against Alabama, Quinn Ewers had his two best games in college. And then against Washington, we talked about the inconsistencies, but he still played well at times when he needed to. I think if he went to a place that would truly put their faith in him and not have like this guy in waiting. That's why I think Ohio state might be a mistake. Cause you have Aaron Nolan there right now. Who's who is everybody's anointing as this next guy. As far as within the Ohio state fan base, it's not arch Manning, but similar kind of construct. If he can go to a place that will believe in him and put their faith in him for one to two years without having that elephant on the shoulder, I think then we could potentially see what Quinn Ewers can really do because coming out of that 2022 season where he had the messed up non-throwing shoulder that really impacted his game once he came back, I think we could potentially see what he could be because I, I there's more to him. I just don't know how you're going to extract it. It just isn't going to be a Texas. I'm going to let's we're going to go to Bama Michigan, but first USC quarterback Quinn Ewers. All right. So <laughs> let's talk about Washington's opponent in the national title game, the Michigan Wolverines. Defeating Alabama in overtime in what really did feel kind of like an NFL game. Like it felt like a it had the physicality, it had the adjustments in the second half of an NFL game. And honestly, like I think Alabama made some really great adjustments in the second half. I thought they got gashed a lot in the run game, playing their four down mint fronts a lot. So they went to five man fronts and they completely shut down the Michigan run game and forced J.J. McCarthy to throw the ball in obvious passing situations when Alabama could win. But I just think this Alabama team this year was not good at the little things. You know, like it's like it's not that they don't have talent. That team is really talented. It's just snapping the ball incorrectly for most of the game. It's miscommunications on the, on the offensive line. It's not passing off coverages, not passing off man-to-man. That was the biggest thing. The touchdown for Michigan, the first touchdown, was on a man was on a man coverage where they were, they were man-matching it, and the linebackers didn't pass it off. The big fourth down completion to Blake Corum in the, in the fourth quarter, that was a man that was man-matched. They didn't pass, the linebackers didn't pass it off. It's just those little things that separate good teams from great. I talk a lot about winning in the margins. Michigan won in the margins. Alabama didn't. AJ. Yeah, I think you. I think you raised a great point, but I also, I also want to give Michigan credit because, like, they challenged 
Alabama was disciplined with those. Like, I think they showed more eye candy and more motion to really disrupt Alabama's match heavy things. Uh, I think then I think a lot of people anticipated coming in. I think that was part of why Alabama struggled so much initially was I think they were just caught flat footed by Michigan, like being a part of the 21st century and throwing motion at them a ton uh, really shifted a lot of looks. And I think it challenged their discipline a lot to where I almost wonder if Bama would have been better off like at the time, just like sitting back and just, you know, drop and just spot dropping and not matching. And I think they did that a little bit better in the second half, but Michigan, man, what a game plan from, that was a, from start to finish. Like that was, plan. that was uh, both sides of the ball. I thought, they, and then, you know, the second half with, I think the both adjustments were tremendous. Um, it'll be very, I'm kind of curious to see, how they attack Washington because you can't on it as a defense, you can't attack Washington the same way that you were attacking Bama. Right. Like I thought for the most part, Jalen Milrow played fine passing. They just had nobody open. Like they, they smothered Bama's wide receivers. You're not going to do that on Washington. That's not I also true. think that this is the best receiver group. Michigan is going to face this year. Yes. Just yeah. in overall depth. Like, yeah. of course, it, like, you would say, like, oh, they don't have Marvin Harrison Jr. Roma Dunze was just as good this year. And again, yeah. when they need when they need it the most, Michael Penix and Roma Dunze always connect. Yeah. And that's something that, that Michigan's gonna have to disrupt. I think you brought up a great point in the game plan. I think Jesse Minter has gotten a lot of well-deserved credit for his defensive game plan, but Sharon Moore had an awesome game plan offensively, just from the from the shifts, like you said, and the motion to kind of make them declare what the uh, what Bama was doing, and then just adjusting in the second half. They included a lot more J.J. McCarthy design runs. Um, and again, when they needed it the most, they leaned on the things that got them there, which is power. And that's how they won the game. Yeah, it, it's really like the Sharon Moore, I also, I, I think, did a, a much better job of adjusting the Washington passing game as well with JJ McCarthy, like outside of that first big scare with the near interception uh, to start the game. I thought beyond that JJ McCarthy played fine, right? I don't think he was sensational by any stretch, but Michigan doesn't need him to be sensational. Right. Um, but they were terrified of the Alabama pass rush. They were mm-hmm. constantly moving the pocket. There was a lot of play action. They were moving yeah. the pocket. It was a lot of so a much. lot of pullers, especially on like th- there was. They were absolutely terrified of having JJ McCarthy make a straight drop back. I don't think you, that's going to get any better when you play Washington because Washington's got some dudes up front in that pass rush. Braylon Trice uh, is phenomenal. ZTF is tremendous as well. Like, like they've got dudes that can get after the quarterback and I don't, and they're not going to match the same style, the same uh, way and, and as heavy as Alabama does. Cause that's been Alabama's core focus forever. And so how Michigan approaches that, because you're going to have to outscore Washington because Washington will score. Michigan's defense is phenomenal. Washington will find a way to score points. That's the bottom line, and that's going to happen. How does Michigan make up the margin, right? I don't think you could really play ball control style against Washington because Washington can score in two or three plays. Like, that doesn't matter. 
how you were able to capitalize on on positive drives and put it in the end zone because you're not going to beat them with field goals. I think that's interesting. I'm very excited to see how Sharon Moore adjusts and attacks Washington. So one of the things I was really impressed with with Michigan, and it's not even from a schematic standpoint, it's just how they responded to all of the stimuli and the the things that happen in a normal football game. Oh, there was there were fumbles on special teams. Okay, we're good with that. Bama takes the lead in the second half. We're fine. We keep playing. Tyler, I think this was another game where Michigan answered the question of can they can they figure it out when things aren't going their way? I think we got a big answer about that on on uh monday night because they have not put the game into jj mccarthy's hands once this year they also haven't had to and one of the big questions was well is it because he can't or you just know you don't have to so why even do it and jp you love running the football well there's a bigger risk in passing the football than there is in running the football especially when it comes to turnovers so if you don't have to do the safe thing because you're really fucking good at it. You don't have to throw the football very much. And against Penn State, J.J. McCarthy threw it 10 times. And they won by almost double digits. They don't need to do those things. So when McCarthy had to do it, I want to give him a lot of credit because the first play of the game, he almost throws that interception to Terry and Arnold on the sideline. And Arnold is he was out of bounds before he jumped up for that football. If that's a catch and that's an interception, oh, Caleb Downs, sorry. Um, holy crap. That's that's a complete game changer. And honestly, Michigan probably loses the game because of that one play. It felt but like he, the same old Michigan. It did. Because if you remember that TCU game last year, they, they got down, what, 21 nothing or 21 to 3? And mm-hmm. it happened in like a blink of an eye. And they came back and lost 45 42. But they had to scratch and claw and fight to get there. Here, they didn't have to do that. They still had to come from behind. They got that late touchdown. And the Jim Harbaugh going for it when he didn't have to, when he had a defense that was playing well, they had three timeouts and three and a half minutes left. They went for it. They got it. They trusted McCarthy to drive them down the field. And he did. And I think they answered that question. Now, is he going to be able to do some of that against that dominant front that Washington has with that offensive line that's kind of makeshift at this point. Are they going to be able to stop Braylon Trice enough to really make that matter? And is McCarthy going to be able to adapt in the pocket? That's that's really what I think we're going to be looking forward to on Monday. So my biggest worry when it comes to Washington's defense is them not gonna them not being able to get JJ McCarthy and Michigan into obvious passing situations. It's the it's not as much the oh we're gonna get them in the late downs you know and get them into like third and longs and second and longs where they have to throw the ball. It's worried I'm worried more about Michigan consistently being in like second and four or like second and three where they don't have to throw the ball. And that way you can get into the play action stuff that Michigan likes to do out of their bigger personnel. And that, and then you just completely unlock Michigan's whole entire game plan. So I think the bigger worry for me is if Washington can kind of hold up up front, because like AJ said, when we were talking about Washington and Texas, Texas kind of had a lot of success 
on the ground, uh, especially in the first half. Now, Sark going away from it was not, not the best game plan, but Michigan's not going to go away from the run game if it's working. If they find it, they will absolutely hammer them. And Washington isn't that great up the spine of the defense when it comes to the run game. So that's my biggest worry. But if they can get them, if they can get Michigan into obvious passing situations, I think Washington might have the advantage. Um, Kevin, where does Alabama go from here? This was, it feels like this year we kind of spent like, oh, what's wrong with Bama? What's wrong with Bama? And then they make the college football playoff. Like and win the SEC, so it feels like oh, it's all just a wash. But what do you what do you have thoughts on with Alabama's future and where they go from here? It's really interesting because last season when they didn't make the playoffs, right? Like Nick Saban reset, hired a new offensive coordinator in Tommy Reese, hired a new defensive coordinator in Kevin Steele, and I think Kevin Steele did well this year calling plays. I think they had a solid defense offensively i don't know if there's a single soul in the nation who feels confident with what tommy reese is doing as the offensive coordinator of alabama and you have a quarterback who is special i'm gonna call jalen milrow special right he is a very special talent he feels wasted with tommy reese at the helm and i don't even know if tommy reese wants him to start right because there was the discussion of Tommy Reese wanted someone else, uh, you know, potentially the the lacrosse star uh, is, is what we'll call him. Uh, like, he, they wanted someone else starting at Alabama. And Jalen Miller has proven he's the guy at Alabama. I don't know if the answer is firing Tommy Reese, but it sure feels like that's the solution. Or it sure feels like that is the, the, the answer to this. Uh, the other thing, man, please go get some offensive linemen who are skinny, who can move laterally, who can be able to uh, effectively snap the ball, first of all. Please go get someone who can snap the ball effectively because you don't have someone who can do that. Uh, the guy you had into the transfer portal because he couldn't do it. Uh, there was a stat of like the PFF grades when they ran towards the right side were in like the 80s. When they ran to the left side, they were in like the 20s. That is pretty damning of where your offensive line construction lies. Uh, and then equally, go get some wide receivers for Jalen Milrow who are consistent, uh, who can make plays. Because right now, again, it feels like we've been talking about this since the last group of Alabama receivers entered the NFL draft. But Alabama doesn't have a wide receiver who I feel like is consistent. Uh, I like Isaiah Bond a lot as a receiver, and he's made some big plays. I don't know if he's a consistent wide receiver one and you need a consistent wide receiver one to win in college football. And I'm not asking them to go get the Washington four NFL wide receivers just sitting there waiting, but go get one, please go get one and go give Jalen Milrow something that looks competent because it feels like time is running out for, for Nick Saban to go do this again, because first of all, he's getting older I think eventually he's going to want to retire and go do what Nick Saban does, go fish on a lake. But like time's running out for them to win that final national championship for him. I, 
I, I, Kevin's point about the weight is an interesting topic. Do you guys think Alabama is poorly conditioned? Because that's that's yes. what stood Awfully. out. Yeah, it, it's it's been a problem the last couple yeah. of years. I think, Since especially I, especially I in the that. trenches, it's bad. Like their their trench development the last couple of years on both sides of the ball has been horrendous. Like, I, like I think J.C. Latham once he gets away from Bama is gonna is gonna be significantly better. Uh, it's it's really kind of interesting to me that Bama is like the premier team of college football and their physical development and even the just like positional coach development. Like, th- like who do you really care about? Like Robert Gillespie is good as a running backs coach, but like who do you care about on that staff? That's like. So noteworthy think, compared to some of the coaches that they've put out over the years. I mean, obviously the legendary 2015 staff, but you look at this, this group of assistants and coordinators and you're like, who's, who's that guy? It's almost like they could use a game changer coordinator. Don't start with this. And I'll, don't, don't do this. Um, AJ, when, when about would you say that uh, these problems started? Do you think? Roughly, oh, when Scott Cochran left yep. for Georgia, That's... yeah, because I was gonna say, uh, they hired, I don't a, think it's a coincidence, director of sports performance in, in 2020, and the it was because Cochran went to Georgia to go be the special teams coordinator. So, and uh, now Georgia is Georgia, and uh, Alabama is doing uh, this, uh, with yeah. a guy that previously was the director of sports performance at Indiana uh, during the vaunted 2018 and 2019 Indiana football seasons, uh, which we all remember, of course. So I think my thing with the offensive line is I agree. I I've been saying the entire season, they need to get lighter and it not only just for conditioning purposes, but it limits the amount of stuff you can do in your playbook. Alabama doesn't throw a lot of screens. That could have helped a lot against a pass rush that was basically create trying to cause havoc. But you can't run any like slow screens or running back screens because the offensive line can't move. Like you think about guys like Caden Proctor, who's a freshman. He's like 360. There's no reason for for him to be playing like playing that big. But what I'm getting to is I kind of think they did that intentionally. I think. They wanted that offensive line to be big because they wanted to just manhandle opposing defense. They just wanted to, they wanted to phone booth opposing defenses, but that really didn't, that really didn't work when defenses realized you can start slanting and looping your fronts and running games and they just can't move. And my next thing is kind of a uh, tie into the receiver thing, but, uh, CBS reporter uh, Shehan Jayaraja also mentioned this on Twitter. I think the lack of development when it comes to Alabama's defensive line and receivers are directly linked to Texas A&M getting all the five stars and doing nothing with them. Because now nobody has the five star. They don't have the five stars because Texas A&M is doing nothing with them. And so now it's kind of like, oh, it's kind of evened out. Like it's, it's the parody thing that we've all wanted in college football, but you're kind of seeing it take a little bit of a toll on Alabama where like 
the defensive line was good, but not Alabama standard good. So it's just those kind of things. They're probably going to get like half of those Texas A&M guys from the portal, but it's just something, you know, like I've thought about a lot because we're seeing kind of the ramifications of Jimbo recruiting like the best recruiting class like ever seen and then not doing anything with it. Alex? JP, I think your your point about the building the offensive line that way on purpose is really interesting because I think it ties in with what Kevin was talking about with Tommy Reese as OC, um, where like this has been Alabama's thing for as long as they've been Alabama, right? Like we're going to recruit the biggest, strongest, like just most like we're going to outbig you. This is the whole thing. This is the SEC's whole thing, and Alabama's has always been the best at it. And it almost feels like that doesn't really mesh with what Tommy Reese wants to do on offense all the time. And that's what's made this season so such a weird fit is that like you have an offense that's structured to play Bama ball. You have an offensive line that is giant. The personnel have, is fitting of Bama ball. Yeah. And like you have Jalen Milrow, who is like built to just like essentially be Derek Henry, but playing quarterback. Um, you have all of these guys to play what Bama's offense has always been. And you went out and hired a guy that doesn't run that. And the whole season felt like they've been trying to kind of like merge those two identities. And it just like hasn't quite reached like the meeting point yet. It was very telling in the first half when Alabama would go to 11 personnel or spread out the offense, the offensive line would get crushed. Like it just yeah. wasn't happening. They could not sim- they simply could not pass off protections in five in five man fronts. What they adjusted to in the second half was you put the fullback on the field. You had more pony personnel. You got bigger. You started running more duo. For some reason, in overtime, they tried to run outside zone, and uh, Mason Graham absolutely blew it up. And I was like, why? Why are you going away from the things that got you to the dance? You're not an outside zone team. You're not a. You're not an outside running team. Power and counter your way to wins, because that's what you did. That's what got you to this dance. AJ? Yeah, and to that point, uh... Alabama called a grand total of 135 gap runs. That's 28% of their run calls with as big of an offensive line as they had. It just, it, it didn't match what they were trying to do. And that's, that's, I think the most frustrating thing about all of this is that it, 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 at some point it's coming down to your coaching, you know, not being the difference. And then of course, on the biggest play of the game, I actually think it was a pretty decent play call that just didn't get executed at all. Again, and the little things coming back. Again, like, yeah, because it was a a bad snap, bad block. Guys were getting beat up front pretty quickly. Like, all all of this thing kind of culminates in a, this isn't the Saban staff that we're used to. And that's that's where I think this gets kind of nerve-wracking a little bit, is if you're Alabama, especially on the point of, like, where do you go next? Do you trust this coaching staff to fix the little things with the like Bama's gonna get talent? They have talent. Like, how are they gonna get developed properly for Bama to go back and win Saban a national title? Because this is his longest national title drought. 
which is wild. That's to me. absurd. That's, That's crazy. Absurd. It's and it's like three years. Like like this, this is not a drought by any means, but for Bama it is. And now the pressure is on for Saban to get things right. And you've already seen him today just like start chucking guys out the portal. Right, right. Just just throwing them out like you cannot play here anymore. Go get out of here. Bumanos. And but is he going to start doing that to his staff? Like, is he going to build that staff or is he going to try and invest in say like, look, what are we going to look like as a staff in year two with a, with a fully developed vision in mind? I don't know if you can trust the staff to do that. It is very concerning that we are sitting here saying these things about an Alabama team because for so long, Alabama's domination was built on recruiting better than everyone else, developing the talent you got, and then kicking ass on the field, right? And like that's what they did. And I get it. You can't recruit the same way. And Nick Saban has been very open about Alabama's NIL recently, right? Like he's very open about a lot of things. But when he says stuff about the NIL collective at Alabama, you sort of listen because I don't think he's just saying that to say that like he wants more money in because he knows where this is going. But the, the thing about the Tommy Reese hire was it felt like it never made sense because Tommy Reese wasn't running elite offenses at Notre Dame. They were good offenses. They were not elite offenses. It it felt like he was hiring a name over hiring a fit. And you had mentioned today, AJ of like, you're running 28% gap runs for a team where your offensive line is built like sumo wrestlers almost, right? Like that's just, it, it doesn't make sense to me to to do this. And I, I think you got to fire Tommy Reese, right? Like you got to fire Tommy Reese, but if you fire Tommy Reese, that means you're on three offensive coordinators in three years. And the last two just no, actually wait four offensive coordinators in four years, because I think, Bill O'Brien only lasted a year there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like if you are on your third or four, okay, so I'm being corrected. Uh, it is three in three years, but if you are on your third offensive coordinator in three years, that signals a problem, man. Like that's, that's bad. I don't know how else to say it. Like that's normally not a good thing. And if that's what Nick Saban is at right now, man, that's concerning. I kind of think that it's also a reflection of Nick Saban and the staff that he created, like kind of proliferating throughout college football. Like those guys are going and creating new trees for other people. They're developing their staff to stay on their staff. You're not getting, you're not getting that 2015 Alabama staff again because all those guys are gone and they're developing their own guys. They're creating their own 2015 staff. So it just comes down to those kind of things. And I don't, I don't have any doubt in my mind that Nick Saban isn't going to figure it out, but it is concerning when, you know, like the biggest problem with this Alabama team this year was the offensive line. Like that's the, that was the thing that you prided yourself on as Alabama. AJ. Oh no! I, like, I was just kind of like taking back, like off your point of guys are building out their own staffs. Uh, look at what Lane Kiffin has done at Ole Miss. I think, for the most part, they've been especially in the offensive development. But I, I give all the credit. I think Kirby Smart at Georgia has done a tremendous job hiring assistants just throughout his entire tenure. 
like you look Fran Brown recently getting hired as a Syracuse head coach. Uh, it's so many of their other players, like even just bringing in Will Muschamp as just another, and now he's a co-defensive coordinator. Like that's a brilliant hire. I think Smart has been very shrewd, and now Smart is develop is competing with you for all the top coaches. So many of these other programs are competing with you for the top coaches. It, it's it's kind of like. Bama just doesn't have it's a parody conversation that you like Bama isn't isn't the only team at the top of the mountain for these guys to go to now. So Saban earlier could gobble up all the talented coaches and players. And now there's four other teams. There's five other teams up there competing for all this talent and in both players like on the field and in coaching. And I think that's why he ended up with Tommy Reese was like he just kind of had to settle because he couldn't get anybody else. So we're going to get into a little previewing of the national championship. Tyler, what do you think is going to be the biggest matchup that decides this national title game? Oh, it's easy. It's going to be the the Washington offensive line versus the Michigan defensive line. Uh, Washington arguably has the best offensive line in the country. They did win the Joe Moore Award for being the best offensive line in the country. And that Michigan defensive line is just filled with freaks. It is every year. And they did a number on the Alabama offensive line kind of as we already talked about and that fourth down counter play that they ran with uh, Jalen Milrow. He was this close to hitting, but Josiah Stewart just absolutely bull rushed JC Latham right into Milrow. And that ended up finishing the game. If they can get pressure on Penix, if they can penetrate that offensive line, that's going to make things really, really difficult for Washington to be able to operate their offense. However, it's going to be a real battle because that offensive line is really, really good. Um, Fautanu is one of the best offensive linemen in the country. I don't know if he's going to play guard or tackle at the next level, but I don't think it matters. I think he's going to be a 10-plus year starter in the league. And what, how, whoever wins that matchup, I think, wins the game. And there are some other matchups that I know we'll get into, but that's the biggest one for me. JP, as, as, a, as a Washington fan, who do you think? What do you think is going to be the biggest matchup in this national title game? Uh, I think that there is a definite argument to be made that it will be the Michigan receivers versus the Washington secondary, because neither one of those units are particularly good, and so in a national championship game where generally you have two rather complete teams um, where Michigan is a top five to 10 unit on both sides of the ball. Washington is a top five to 10 offense. Uh, generally you need your weakest link to step up in a game with these sorts of stakes. Uh, Michigan's wide receivers sort of did that against Alabama. Um, Roman Wilson kind of like had that explosion late in the game to kind of like get them back into it and get them into the lead. Um, Tyler Morris, who's a freshman, had like that, that big touchdown catch uh, kind of like I think it was in the second quarter. Um, and the Washington corners and and secondary as a whole, you know, as we talked about earlier, like they've stepped up for every big moment um that that has come their way like jabbar muhammad has played his best games against the best receivers that they that have been on washington's schedule Eddie mitchell really didn't get going until late in the second half because muhammad was 
on him pretty much the whole game. And then Muhammad gets injured and all of a sudden AD Mitchell is making plays. Um, you go back to like the Oregon games, which were Franklin, like Franklin really didn't have much of an impact when he was matched up against Muhammad. Now where Muhammad in particular has struggled is against teams that have on paper, weaker wide receivers. And there's, it, it's a backwards thing that has happened with him all season. And so with Michigan that doesn't have like a surefire NFL wide receiver, like, you know, top three rounds wide receiver on that team, I think that you you start to think about like how effective they're going to be able to be. Um, obviously, Elijah Jackson had that huge play to swat away like the game winning pass, but he's kind of been up and down this season, has struggled a lot. Um, Washington has been pretty inconsistent at safety because of some injuries. Um, Asa Turner has been out in and out of the lineup all season. Uh, Cameron Fabiculanen, who's kind of like their nickel, like dime slat back sort of guy, has been out of the lineup um, in and out. And so there's a lot of gelling that this secondary still has to do, um, to be honest. And like they did that for the most part against Texas. Um, but there were still, you know, a handful of big plays that Texas was able to get through the air. And so I think that like how they perform against Michigan, especially with like what we talked about earlier about like needing to get Michigan into these obvious passing situations and making JJ McCarthy beat you. Like if they're able to do that, then like the secondary still has to hold up their end of the bargain, no matter what Braylon Trice does, no matter what ZTF does, no matter what like that whole defensive front is doing. And so I think that there's a real argument to be made that like who wins that matchup dictates who wins the game because it's just which weakest link shows up more. AJ, what do you think is going to be a matchup that defines this game? I, I kind of find it's Tyler's point of the offensive line. Like I think uh, Parker Brailsford matched up against those in defensive tackles for Michigan is going to be a, a tremendous battle all night. Um, I am very interested to see how the individual linebacker units respond because I don't know if Michigan can cover Westover. I'd like, but on the flip side, I don't know if, if Washington's linebackers can get Blake Corum down, can handle the blocks. Like, that's I, I think it's a very intriguing matchup just in terms of, of that from an individual standpoint. Uh, this is a game where Roma Dunze, I think, is going to go off. I think they're going to isolate Roma Dunze, be able to do it pretty well. Like, like in the Alabama game, they were blanketing Alabama's receivers, but Bama didn't do a lot to get guys open. Right. It, it, it was really like kind of predictable and stale. Washington is anything but. And so I, I think this is a game where, if, you know, if Roma Dunze is getting to open as he does. I think Washington's got this one. See, and I think that's a big thing for this game because he's probably going to see a lot of Will Johnson, who has played his best against bigger name opponents. We've seen him play against Marvin Harrison Jr., played him really well. He's probably going to see a lot of Dunze. I think this is actually going to be a big Polk-McMillan game because somebody outside of – somebody's going to be able to make a play. And, of course, you want Roman Dunze to make that. But, again, you got four NFL receivers. You, they, can't, they can't guard all of you. You know, like it, somebody's going to get open. Kevin, what do you think is going to be the biggest difference in this game, the biggest matchup? I'm going to go off the actual field and go to the sidelines because 
I think the best or the most important matchup is the coaching, right? And it's very cliche to say that coaching wins championships or whatever, right? But like Jesse Minter is one of the better defensive coordinators in football. And to AJ's point, like if Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubbs are going to try and isolate Roma Dunze, which they will, then to that same degree, what does Jesse Minter do to respond, right? Because this is his biggest test, right? Like facing three NFL wide receivers, facing an NFL quarterback, facing an offense like this, it's going to be challenging. And then on the flip side, like we saw what Michigan or what Washington can do when they get pressure on the quarterback. How does Michigan counter? Because like this is the games where both coaching staffs are going to make their money or they're going to have to make their money because I don't think there's too much of a talent discrepancy between these two teams to be able to sit here and go, this team is more talented. They're going to win this game. Like dudes win college football games, but also neither of these teams are overmatched comparatively to the other. And so I like, I, you got to see what Jesse Minter does. You have to see what Ryan Grubbs does. You have to see what, Washington's defensive coordinator does, especially if Michigan's able to start running the ball like they do at points. Like this is going to be the game where those guys make their are gonna have to make their money because I just don't see a real like huge talent discrepancy on the field. So my biggest matchup for this game, and I kind of went back and forth with this. I mean, the easy answer is Washington's defensive front against Michigan's offensive line. But I think the answer here is J.J. McCarthy and Michael Penix against pressure, against the blitz. That's something that, like we said when we talked about Washington and Texas, Washington was able to get to Quinn Ewers when they sent pressure, when they were able to mix up the fronts, when they were able to get Braylon Trice going. How is J.J. McCarthy going to respond to that stimuli? He has not been pressured a lot this year. But he also hasn't been asked to throw a lot, you know, and that's something like we talked about earlier this season with Michigan's offensive line is not the same offensive line that they have been in previous years, especially in the pass blocking department. That's something that Washington can take advantage of it. And so how JJ McCarthy responds under pressure is going to be huge. And then on the flip side of that, it kind of goes along with what Kevin said about Jesse Minter. Does Minter send pressure? against Michael Penix because there is always going to be that, hey, we can send this, but we're leaving our guys on islands against, again, three NFL receivers. And Penix has shown that he can beat you with his arm. And I think he's also shown that he's, he was able to beat you with his legs and the pocket movement. So both of these quarterbacks under pressure is going to be the biggest matchup for me in what is basically the ultimate pressure cooker in college football. AJ? Yeah, I- I think with with both of you guys' points on Jesse Minter, like they did a good job adjusting and switching game plans against Alabama. And I think it, both coaching staffs in that game, I think, did like the first half, they were just like spamming fire zone, right? It was just we're gonna put five six man pressures up, and Bama Bama couldn't block it. The difference is Washington's going to be able to block it, right? Like you can in 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 that scenario. They're going to throw all over you. Michael Penix was arguably the best quarterback in the country under pressure this year and against the blitz. Like he's going to find an open guy right away. And so now, like, you can't sit and play coverage 
because they'll just pick you apart if he gets time. But you can't avoid sending pressure because you don't like, like there's so many interesting matchups to this, this game. Like there's so many different wrinkles. I really feel like this has the ability to be the best national championship in a long time. Like these are two, these are two like pseudo NFL teams this year, like just from coaching staffs to talent. Like these are the very obvious and clear two best teams in the country. I like, I think this is an excellent, excellent game because it's really unpredictable. Like I, I, I have no idea who's going to win this game. And I think that's awesome. I think that's fantastic for the sport. Yeah. So as the, as the resident UW guy, obviously I did the, the ISO ball a little bit earlier and I'm going to do it again now. Uh, just because like, I've already thought about this game a ton because it's the most stressed out I've ever been in my whole life. Um, I think that the Texas game showed that Penix is moving the best that he has all season and arguably ever. Um, and so like to JP's point about bringing pressure and everything, like Texas brought a ton of pressure and they got a fair amount. Um, but they weren't able to sack Penix a single time. And like, you saw some pocket movement from Penix that like, we have not seen all season. And I think that the month off, like makes very clear. There was never anything reported. There was never anything said. There was never anything that like was out in the public sphere but I think that it was very obvious from watching the Texas game versus watching the last couple games of UW's regular season schedule that Penix got hurt in that first Oregon game. And now he is fully healthy. And I think that that's pretty obvious given the way that he played against Texas. Um, speaking of being fully healthy, I think that the way, like, I think that how limited Dylan Johnson will be in this game is going to have a huge impact on what Washington is able to do because all season Washington's offense has been predicated upon. Yes, there is the threat of we're going to throw it 70 yards downfield to one of our three NFL wide receivers. And you can't stop that. And they've been able to do that to great success. And they showed that for the first four five, six games of the season. And then they got kind of into the meat of their schedule and they said, Hey, we have this guy that transferred in and he was injured all spring. And uh, it turns out that he's pretty good at running the ball behind our Joe Moore award winning offensive line. And you saw Washington really lean into that, um, especially against some of the heavier teams that they played. Um, like they ran on Oregon a ton. They ran on Oregon state a ton. They ran on uh, Utah a ton. And like, how much they're going to be able to use Johnson against Michigan, who's a similar team to those teams, like built to be big, built to be a team that stops the run, but they gave up 172 to Alabama. Jace McClellan had 87. Milrow added 63 of those, right? And so like, it's a different game plan because Penix isn't going to have 63 rushing yards. It's just not going to happen. But if Johnson is limited, Washington doesn't really have a second guy at running back they've kind of gone by committee all year it was supposed to be cameron davis he tore his acl in fall camp and so since then it's kind of been like we either have johnson or we don't have a run game and so if johnson is going to be severely limited which we don't really know um DeBoer has said that like it's a aggravation of an injury that johnson has been dealing with for months on end at this point 
And so like, he should be good to go, but like he was pretty obviously affected by it in the Texas game, you know, down to 2.3 yards of carry, which is I think by far his lowest the season. So how much he's going to be available, I think is really going to affect how much Washington is able to do on offense, even though they have this lethal passing game. Um, with that passing game, Bill Connolly posted a stat this morning that um, when UW's in-game win probability per FPI, which is ESPN's model, is under 50%, Michael Penix has thrown the ball to Romo Dunze 21 times. Those passes have gone 19 for 21 for 333 That's yards. That's insane. Like, <laughs> I think the discussion needs to be had about Penix to Odunze being on the same level or even better than Burrow to Chase because yeah. they just they never miss. No. Ever. Like never. it's always if it's time for a big play, they're hitting that big play. Like it's insane. Yeah. And you can say, right, like Will Johnson will probably be the best corner that UW has faced all season. Um right of like but we also said that about Oregon's group of corners. We said that about Jade Barron. We said that about, you know, a number of, of corners that have tried to do this. And it it just has not mattered. It it does not matter. And with Polk kind of running, uh, rounding back into form, you know, he had some drop issues that he struggled with kind of down the stretch this season. Had a much better game against Texas. Jalen McMillan is fully healthy again. Um, it So, like, you can't cover everyone, even if you're a team like Michigan that has, you know, a pretty high profile secondary. Uh, I think AJ's point about not being able to cover Westover is a really good one. Um, if you look at UW's target distribution, it's the three wide receivers all had at least five catches against Texas and Jack Westover had six. Um, he is just as big of a part of the offense as anyone else. He is the third down guy. If you cannot cover him on third down, UW is going to move the chains and they're going to continue a drive. And that's three more chances that they can hit one of these deep shots to a Dunze or a Polk or hit McMillan over the middle for something. Um, and so you have to be able to cover him. I don't know that Michigan's linebackers are able to do that. Um, defensively, I think that this is a game where you could see a lot more of Carson Bruner, the Washington linebacker, who's gotten a lot more playing time over the last couple of weeks. And you could see a lot more of uh, Sakai Afoa Asoao, um, who's kind of Washington's third edge. Um, he's a much stouter guy, almost 270 compared to, to Trice and to ZTF. And so he's kind of like the guy that they rotate in, in like run heavy packages. Um, Bruner is also someone who's like much better defending the run than he is the pass. He's like their ace special teamer that is just like thumping kick returners every, every week, but he's gotten a lot more run on defense, had a forced fumble against Texas. I think he's going to play a lot more, especially with how run heavy you'd expect Michigan's game plan to be. And so I think that you'll see Washington kind of match what they expect Michigan to do by trotting more of that personnel out there. Um, and then trusting that they're, game plan on the back end is enough to limit what they, what Michigan is able to do if they do get into passing situations. Um, I think that, again, the, the matchup between Michigan's wide receivers and Washington's secondary is going to be a huge one. Um, I would be concerned, especially if Bruner is not playing as much as I expect him to, I would be primarily concerned about Michigan running up the middle 
Um, Washington's interior defensive line is not super strong. Um, you'll notice that like when I talk about like guys that I expect to play more, it's not a third defensive tackle or another defensive end like Alabama brought on the field because UW doesn't really have one that's good enough to do that with. Um, and so then you're talking about like uh, Eddie Ulf, uh, Ulufoshio fitting the run. You're talking about Tupatala fitting the run. And like both of those guys have been a little bit inconsistent. They're just a little bit smaller. And so you get into some like dicey territory there, which is why I think Bruner will play a lot more. Um, and yeah, just like AJ was talking about, just everything about this matchup, like I could keep going for like another hour about this game. And just like every single position, every single individual matchup, every single, like every single part of it is going to be so, so like spotlighted because like every little thing about this game is going to matter, uh, I think. And like, obviously like it's the national championship. And so it's very easy to say, but just like the way that these two teams match up, it's clear that every Every individual player, every individual play, every individual matchup is going to have an impact on who wins this game. And I think for that reason, I'm kind of in the same boat as AJ, where it's like this could end up being like one of the classic games in college football. Like we could be talking about this one forever. Um, prediction wise, I struggle greatly. <laughs> I, I really. I am really not confident one way or the other. I think that eventually what it boils down to, and this is going to sound Homerish because obviously I, I went to UW, but also before you get mad at me for doing that, keep in mind, I grew up a Michigan man. Both my parents went to Michigan. I, I am both sides in this. Um, I do think eventually what it comes down to is what I talked about at the top, which is that this team, this UW team gets up for the biggest games and Kalen DeBoer has a way of getting the best out of his players in the biggest games on the biggest stages. Michigan has an aspect of that to them, but I think that like just with the way that the game shakes out where Washington is going to score and Michigan is going to have to respond that forces Michigan into more passing situations. And I don't ultimately think that Michigan can keep up with the scoring pace that's going to be set i think that it ends up being like 30 to 27 washington but i'm like not confident in that at all aj would you care giving us a prediction one way or the other i i'm gonna go washington i i think washington would kind of to alex's point i i don't if if this comes into a scoring matchup, like it, I think if Washington crosses that 24 point margin, I think they they're winning that game. Like it, 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 no matter what, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if Michigan can keep up long enough for it to matter. Um, and so I, I just, I, at the end of the day, in these kind of games where it comes down to the individual matchups and so many of these different things, I have to lean on the better quarterback and I think that's far and away Michael Penix in this matchup. Tyler? So far in bowl season, I'm 28-13-1 against the spread. I've been steadfast that Washington's the best team in the country for more than a month. Um, 
I'm not just betting Washington plus four and a half. I'm putting two units on Washington money line. And I think they win this game. And I think they win it relatively comfortably. And by comfortably, I mean like 31-20, not like a massive blowout. I think Washington has the ability to put up a bunch of points. I think in that battle in the trenches, I think the offensive line is going to uh, protect Penix enough to be able to hit a couple of those deep shots to Odunze, Polk, and McMillan. And they're going to be able to move the ball by spreading out that team and Penix just utilizing his ability to see the field and fire shots to the receivers that he trusts more than anything. I think this is Washington's time. Michigan had a great run. They finally were able to get past that semifinal, but they're running into an offensive juggernaut that I just don't think, one, they can stop, and two, keep up with. Kevin? I I, I said earlier that coaching mattered a lot in this game to me, and I think these are two of the better, if not the best, coaching staffs in the country. Uh, I just think Jesse Minter is going to have something up his sleeve, right? Like, I think that we, I, I think this is going to be the best national championship we've seen in a while. And I feel like every hour when I think about this game, I go, the other team is going to win. And as of now, when we're recording this episode, I just, I, I keep going back to Jesse Minter, right? And it's like, I think he does enough to win this game for Michigan and defense wins championships. And I like both these defenses are really talented. Don't get me wrong, but like, I just think Jesse Minter has enough up his sleeve to win this game. It's going to be close. It's going to be a dog fight. Like, I don't think this game ever gets more than like 10 points in either direction and it stays tight, but give me Michigan by three. I, I think it's going to be close, but I think Michigan wins this one late. So I've always gone with the stronger line play in these matchups. And I think while Washington's offensive line will have the advantage against Michigan's defensive line, I think the gap between Michigan's offensive line and Washington's defensive line, especially in those run scenarios, is really large. Um, something that I think is going to be worthy to keep out, keep an eye on. Both these teams are really aggressive on fourth down. Those winning within the margin is going to be huge. Um, Michigan is also coming off of one of their worst special teams performances in what feels like ever, or at least since Harbaugh took over. Since so the App State game. You kind of worry the about State game, the Michigan State game. Yeah, you kind of worry about the the bad vibes on special teams because you better believe if you make a mistake against Washington and you put them in the red zone, they're going to score seven. They're not going to score field goals. So, but again, I just don't think I can go against the team with the better quarterback and the better receivers. I'm going to go Washington 30 to 27. But I can just as easily see this being a Michigan ball control game where Jim Harbaugh wants to play this like he did, like the old Stanford teams or even his time with the 49ers where he just tries to keep Penix and that offense off the field as much as possible. So I can really see it going either way. But right now, 
I think Washington does it in the the final year of the Pac-12. And what would be a better swan song for the conference than winning the winning the final 14 playoff as you get sent to your doom? This is the perfect outcome for the predictions because we avoided the uh, unanimous curse. And also now, if the four of us are right, we get to dunk on Kevin. I, I really lose either way. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Because because if Michigan wins, then I get depressed Alex on the entire next podcast. But if Michigan loses, I get dunked on for the entire podcast for not believing in Washington. We would no, do that hold on. Hold I mean, on, Kevin. Is that any different than any other normal podcast? Yeah, no, it, it doesn't sound much different. But like in terms of me winning in this scenario, really don't win. You have to remember that no matter what, Katzen wins. I don't think if I don't he, think Katzen. I don't think Katz is going to be coming on the next episode of Michigan Wins excited. I don't think so. But no, but he he'll be Kester. he'll be less sad than if it was against another team. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I don't think it's true at all. Like yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if next Wednesday he'll be going. Ah, man, you know what? We didn't win, but Michigan won, and it's like some like guy playing fantasy football, and he's got the uh, the, the the star players on the other team of the team his favorite team is. But hey, the but, moral of the story is that uh, no matter what happens on this podcast, Kevin loses. That's right. No matter what happens, Kevin loses, and that is what happened. Our way. Our, our thoughts on college football and the national title. Make sure wherever you listen to this, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, like, review, give us five stars. If you don't give us five stars, we're going to say nice things about Kevin. And we all know you don't want us to do that. From Tyler, Alex, AJ, and the aforementioned Kevin, I am JP, and we will see you next time.